certainly thankful for that special. The uh, I talked to the girls as they were leaving Sunday school today, and they were <clears throat> excited for the new curriculum. And uh, I, I challenge all of you to ask these kids every once in a while what they're learning. Uh, what what did they learn today so that we can not only reinforce it, but just know that they're being fed. Not that certainly we don't trust Sister Janine, but uh, teachers can only do so much, as Steve would say, and she would say as well. We can only present these things. We can't write them upon hearts. We can't cause it to be a practice. And we have to trust that to the Lord. But what a, what a blessing. Certainly appreciate that special. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. <clears throat> the... Uh, I usually write in shorthand the title of my message, and um, the title is The Pharisees and the Sadducees Seek a Sign, and what I wrote on the outside was The Far and Sad Seek a Sign Again, and I kind of like that title a little bit better, The Far and the Sad Seek a Sign Again. We do have two parallels uh, to give us this account, Mark 8, verses 10 through 12, and Matthew chapter 15, going into Matthew 16, verse 4, and I'll read both of them for you. Uh, again, I, I, I loosely make a promise that this should be a short message. It's definitely written to be a short message, uh, but it is one of those events that kind of falls in between some big ones. It falls right after the feeding of the 4,000, uh, and then I won't give away what comes next, but uh, not enough room to dive into the next event, so we'll just spend today looking at this second seeking of a sign. Mark chapter 8, verses 10 through 12 says, And straightway... Jesus entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, There shall no sign be given unto this generation. And then for the Matthew account, if you'll turn over to Matthew 15, we'll start reading in verse 39. Matthew 15, starting in verse 39, and, and crossing the chapter borders, those precious chapter borders, into chapter 16. Matthew 15, starting in verse 39, And he sent away the multitude, and this is after the feeding of the 4,000, and took ship and came into the coast of Magdala. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees, the far and the sad, came, and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. When we think about this on the surface, uh, and, and perhaps it might seem harsh to us that he didn't give them a sign. Perhaps we think they should be seeking a sign. Isn't this a good thing that they, they are desirous of a sign? That, and, and, and again, like we referenced earlier, before we immediately say the far and the sad, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're, they're just a disappointment. They're just a bunch of vipers. We know this to be true. John the Baptist called them that. Jesus called them that. But in the beginning of Acts, do we not also see the apostles asking when the return of the Lord will be, when he will restore the nation of Israel? It is a desire of every man and woman in here to know when he's coming again. What they're seeking here, though, is only that information. They're not seeking to rejoice over it. They're trying to tempt him. We see that in Mark's account, literally. Seeking 
of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. Remember, this isn't a Lord that just looks at the words and looks at the surface. He sees to the heart. He measures the heartstrings. He knows the motivation behind the words that they have uttered unto him. What he's calling them, this generation that seeks after a sign, this, these hypocrites, it's fitting because he knows their heart. They don't want to see him now in their land. They're not looking to see him again. Uh, again, if we look at it as on the surface, the Son of God is before them. And they're still asking for authority. They're still asking for proof. They're still asking for some miracle for which they will not believe. The location that's mentioned here, Dal Dalmanutha, it was a place in Palestine. It is a town on the west side of the Sea of Galilee near Magdala, which is why we see Matthew call it the coast of Magdala and Mark refer to it literally by the city Dalmanutha. The city Dalmanutha means slow firebrand. And then the heart of the message today, I, I want to discuss this second request. And again, this is, it is retreading some ground because it's their second request and we're following the study chronologically. Uh, much like last lessons was retreading some ground because he fed 5,000 and then he fed 4,000 and a lot of the lessons are very similar. But this is the second time for, this, uh, for a request of sign. The first one, we'll just look at Matthew's account. Turn back to Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 45. Matthew 12, starting in verse 38, says, Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation. So you see, he hasn't changed. He's immutable. Uh, day to day, month to month, it's the same answer. An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, continually seeking, because the ETH, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And now we get into what this sign is. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, if you have a Catholic heritage, you're probably cringing. That's what scripture says. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Of course, we know from the book of Jonah that the Ninevites, the, the, the people of Nineveh, were who Jonah was sent as a prophet to proclaim the judgment of God that was upon them. And it was the receiving of that message that led to, for them to repent. And, they're say, and Jesus is saying here that those of Nineveh, those men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Because they repented at uh, the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Uh, this is likely a reference to what Steve was talking about in Sunday school. The two judgment seats in which all by that second judgment will have been resurrected. All by that second judgment. Now not all at the second judgment, but all by the second judgment will have been resurrected. They will have been dealt with. And he's saying here that those of Nineveh will rise in judgment against this generation. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Jonas, a greater than Solomon is here. This is that on the surface that I was talking about. Oh, please show us a sign. He is the Messiah. He is the sign. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through the dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. 
Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out, and when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. So if you're here and you have Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are born again, what else do you need? The overwhelming answer is he is our all in all. And this is the very point. If the Pharisees and the Sadducees weren't a generation of vipers, if they weren't indeed hypocrites, they would already have him and have all that they need. But they don't believe. They aren't born again. They don't have Christ Jesus. And there's no sign that he can give for which they will. Because he didn't save us by signs. No one in here has salvation because of signs. Now, I won't say miracles because I believe salvation is a miracle. But you weren't saved because of a sign. You were saved because God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, went to the cross and died. He suffered. He was humiliated. He was mocked. The very vile of our sin cast upon him, plucked from his beard, pressed into his temple. His precious sovereign blood dripped for our sake. He was buried along with our dead man nature, that old man pictured in baptism, into the grave with Christ Jesus, allowing our release as he rises again at the end of the third day and night, victorious. When he rose again, he didn't bring the old man with him. When he rose again, there was nothing left to be accomplished because before he went in the tomb, he says, it is finished. Coming out of the tomb, exalted above the multitude, a testimony is offered up by the disciples, by the early church. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent. They are able to believe if they can see. If he first loved, as the children sang just a moment ago, if he first loved them, they rejoice over the love they have for him. There was no sign that led to salvation. There was sacrifice that led to salvation. A necessary sacrifice. Again, as we see from the text between Matthew 12 and Matthew 15, his answer had not changed. There is no sign. This time around, there's not as much explanation he doesn't go back and retread all of this. He simply says the sign of Jonas, which was that three days and three nights, him being buried beneath the sea. Listen to his words if we were to turn back to Jonas. If we were to read, and we should, because I made the reference, so turn over to Jonah. Sorry, Isaac, it's going to be a long message now. We're turning. Turn to the book of Jonah. <coughs> Pardon your pastor's cough. If you have a... I'm not sure that all Bibles do it, but if you have a Thompson chain, it's pretty easy to, to, to break out sometimes what the prayers are because they're, uh, the, the, indent, the indentation is different. We, we, I'm in Micah. Pull to Steve. I'm in the wrong book, brother. I'm in the wrong book altogether. It's easy to find certain things when you're in the right book, though. He said, Jonah says there at the end of chapter 2, 
I am cast out of thy sight, verse 4, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I read verse 5 and I think of Isaac in Genesis 22. As we talked before, him being bound, him being helpless, trapped between divine judgment and divine wrath, the blade and the fire. Verse 6, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption. O Lord my God, when my soul fainteth within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto, me, unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the sign. Mm -mm. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon dry land. If we were to go, and we, this time we won't, if we were to go into John and read about Lazarus being risen again, what's the very next day like for him? We don't have to guess. We see it in the text. The very next chapter starts with a place at the supper table for Lazarus. This is not merely a dead man that's been given life again. This is a dead man that's been restored unto new life with a place at the table with the Son of God. He's being mocked by Judas Iscariot. And we see proof of the point we had this morning that persecution is for all that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. None can escape it, but they persecute us because they first hated him. Judas mocks right at the same supper table that Lazarus now sits. What a contrast is Lazarus who is extremely grateful because he was dead and now lives and now dines at the table with Jesus. Think of the picture. Mary and Martha are serving. They're serving the Lord Jesus. They love him so they work. And here's Lazarus sitting with the appointed disciples and eating with Christ Jesus our Lord. Counting it a blessing to suffer the, the mockery of Judas. I mean, if we truly thought of salvation as it's pictured in Scripture, how much more grateful would we be? Lazarus was dead. How grateful he must have been. His sisters embracing him with tears. It wasn't but hours ago they said, He yet stinketh. And yet he came forth at the commandment of his Lord. Was he hungry? I don't know. Don't care. The Lord had a place for him, and he sat in it. I, I can't imagine him sitting at the table with a big grin in his face the entire meal. This is my Lord. Never again was Lazarus to wonder, am I saved? Do I have everlasting life? Will he forsake me? Will I be swallowed up by my persecutors? What of the lame man that leapt about as though he had never not walked with renewed, not just made able to walk, but now muscles in his legs as if he had a whole lifetime of leaping about as a deer dancing. Never again was he going to have to wonder, will this be the day someone will carry me to the miracle pool? Will this be the day the angel comes and stirs the waters and I will be healed? Will this be the day that some sign will come about to confirm everything I've ever hoped? 
No, he had Christ Jesus. He knew that he had Christ Jesus. What of the blind Bartimaeus? How will he remember that he was once touched of the Lord? He was blind, and now he sees. This is what we were discussing this morning. Do you know that you're saved? Do you know that you were once dead and are now made alive? And as the song Amazing Grace portrays, that you were once blind but now see? The deaf man that we recently studied now hears. I wonder if tomorrow he'll remember that he was once deaf. He will. The very first sound that he hears for many of us is in, 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 and we dread it. For him, he says, I am alive. I can hear. And I could never hear before. And one says, before what? And he says, before Jesus Christ. And his testimony begins. Do we witness like that? Do we recognize the life that we have that is owed unto him? And if you don't, you've never yet lived, beloved. You think you've had joys and pleasures in this land. You've had nothing yet until you have the Lord Jesus Christ. You've not fully... Uh, if you've ever gone through a race and at the end of the race you breathe in and it's almost like parts of your lungs never truly had oxygen before because you can feel them all the way deep just expanding and contracting and it's like that you've only lived to half capacity and if you're saved with everlasting life that Christ Jesus gives to you you're breathing like you've never breathed before you're speaking you're dancing you're singing like you've never done before Jesus described the spiritual condition of these who are sad and far from him. They could interpret things physically, earthly. Uh, the scribes proclaimed to be able to interpret the word of God itself, which we've, uh, we've seen many holes in already in this study. But they did not understand things that were spiritual. The Pharisees and, and, the, and the Sadducees even had arguments among themselves about whether resurrection should be possible. What was the sign that Jesus said that they would have? The sign of Jonas, the three days and the three nights, and then at the end of that, resurrection. No doubt that this upset them. It should have divided them. If they were truly listening to his words, they, it should have divided them. But as you'll see in the last point, the two enemies become friends in their pursuit of trapping and tempting our Lord. Secondly, he revealed that they were wicked. He called them hypocrites. A generation seeking only after signs, but not God. They tempted him. They were desirous of trapping him. How foolish for man to attempt to trap God. And yet that was their desire. I mean, if we truly illustrated, and, and I think the map is still turned out here, the footsteps of Christ, the, the pathways of our Lord. Look at those, those arrows. <laughs> Look at the red and the blue lines. And I can't see it from here, but I think I remember them being red and blue. Clark saying yes it is they chased him through all of that to trap him why well mainly because he flipped over those tables in the temple you remember that lesson remember the money they were making off of that the exchange rate and then the purchase of the sacrificial animals and all that there are quite a few still following him because they're upset about that they still want to sell from those tables and their business has been diminished by what he did there They've gone to great lengths. The, the, the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, he, uh, he went on a boat across the sea. They went around the sea to follow after him. And he spelled it out for them. I am the bread of life. 
It's me. You're chasing after me. You're literally seeking after the Messiah. But you ask for a sign. Boy, that, that speaks volumes, does it not? Countless in, in my short ministry so far have left the church saying they weren't loved by the members or they weren't known by the members. They say that they desire something that they were never willing to commit to. Most times they were never ever there. I've seen Baptists get upset because Christmas isn't in the Bible. And yet they've only ever come to church twice a year like a regular Catholic would. Easter and Christmas. I've seen Baptists. Baptists, beloved. And I was a Catholic. Not that it was excusable, but it was expected from a heathen like me. Baptists. Strap on a mask in five weeks and go around looking for candy. I think about some of the masks I put on as a kid. I can tell you right now, I never dressed like an angel. It was usually a werewolf, a demon, the latest horror movie, and in the 80s we had a lot of them. But Baptists, it ought not to be so. We ought to know better. It's like we chase after him and then we're unrecognizable to him because we don't desire to be like him. We want a sign, just as the Fars and the Sads did. He revealed unto them that they were adulterous and that they had forsaken the true God for their empty religion. They wanted God, but they also wanted religion. They wanted God, but they also wanted the traditions of men, as we saw a few Sundays back. What did he point to? What was the only sign he offered them? The very thing he had to offer for the elect of God. And he points to it. His death, burial, and resurrection. His ministry that at this point was beginning to go towards the Gentiles, which was also where Jonah was sent. To Nineveh, the land of the Gentiles. The third thing we see here is the reference to a sign from heaven. In asking for a sign from heaven, they were discrediting his miracles, which they considered to be signs upon earth. They'd already seen some things. They'd been chasing after him. They'd been following. They've heard the tales. They've picked it apart. You ate on the Sabbath day. You healed on the Sabbath day, and so on and so forth. But they didn't want those signs. They didn't want those miracles. Perhaps they wanted fire from heaven, like Elijah had done. Perhaps they wanted bread from heaven, and that's why they reference Moses so often. But if it's a sign from heaven that we sit here and wait on here today, let us beware. Let us be wary of what an actual sign from heaven might be like. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 7. <clears throat> And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things, and in speaking here, uh, to give you some context of the chapter, he's speaking of the destruction of the temple, uh, which is a reference to the destruction of his body as well. They say, when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And Jesus said, take heed that ye be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. 
Then said he unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, and famines and pestilences, and fearful sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. You want signs from heaven? This is what he's describing. The signs that even Steve referenced this morning, talking about the locusts and the, and the life cycle of the locusts and how that is a, a pestilence or a plague, those are signs from heaven. What Pharaoh was handed in Egypt, those are signs from heaven. This is what Israel is asking for from God. If you be him, if you're the Messiah, bring forth signs from heaven. Oh, I don't know that that's realistic, preacher. Well, let's think about the state of the Jews at this point. They're oppressed by the Romans. They're oppressed by the Greeks. They're taxed all over the place. Of course they want signs from heavens. Go get them, God. Well, is that not enough proof? Look again at Luke 9. What did John and James say to send down? They won't receive us. Call down fire. Mm -hmm. You're going to get it now. God's going to call down fire because you didn't receive us. They want the world to be consumed. But they weren't listening. Before all these, they shall lay their hands on you, Jesus says. They shall persecute you, Jesus says. They shall deliver you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought, there, brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. I, I wonder how often I've read this and stopped there, but listen to what he says next. Settle it, therefore, in your hearts. Ouch. <laughs> Settle it, therefore, in your hearts, not to meditate before what you shall answer. Settle it in your heart. This is coming. Before the end times, before the destruction of the temple, before all of this really kicks into high gear, there shall be persecutions. They shall lay your hands on, on you. Remember what we've read of the disciples when I was going through who they were. I gave you the end as well. Each one of them perished, mostly gruesome ways. Boiled alive, cut asunder. Peter asked to be hung on a cross upside down so that he wasn't uh, in a cross in the same manner of his Lord because he wasn't worthy. Read through John's book of martyrs and see how we've perished since. All of these things are coming. All of these things have come and have happened throughout the ages. And they are a testimony, he says. A testimony of what? The same thing Steve taught on and I mentioned earlier, the perpetuity of his promises. We're still here. Settle it in your hearts then, not to meditate before what you shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinfolk and friends, if you're checking boxes, so far I can check each one of them. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not an hair of your head perish. In your patience possess ye your souls. And we, when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. A couple of key phrases here that if you have my outline that I send to some of you, you see they're underlined. Settle it therefore in your hearts. We are not to fear. Only God are we to reverence and fear. And that's a holy fear, a perfect fear. 
It's a fear that comes about because we know he is who he says he is. We know, as Jude said, he is able. And secondly, in your patience, possess ye your souls. In your patience. Rough times are ahead. Rough times are upon us even now. In your patience, possess ye your souls. What is it the world needs to see? They need to see our testimony. They need to see our faithfulness. They need to see of hope. They need to see that we are patient, that we are not surprised of these things because we truly do believe that we are strangers in this land. Pilgrims. Pilgrims sent here on a mission, set to work. And lastly, we see that his opposers are made to be friends. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were enemies on many subjects, were cooperative were members of the same team in the temptation of Christ. Pilate and Herod were made friends for the same reason. Look over to Luke 23, verses 6 through 12. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Same exact thing. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And that means what you think it does. And Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him again to Pilate. And that same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. That's a very important verse. Don't gloss over any verse in the Bible, even the shortest of verses that proclaims Jesus wept or proclaims that Peter wept. It's there for a reason. How were Herod and Pilate suddenly friends? And why was this important? Why wouldn't Jesus speak before Herod? We'll get into all of that, Lord willing, when we get towards that portion of the study. But it's more important that we recognize that in their opposition, they were made cooperative. That Jesus had a lasting effect even on his own enemies. They were opposed to each other in principles. Opposed to each other in conduct and yet joined against Christ. How many red tape rules were thrown out in the process of going after Christ? We got a present day type to consider, don't we? Suddenly, jurisdiction, suddenly warrants, they don't matter, get Trump. That's a pretty realistic picture of how they went after Christ. There were laws in the land. There were laws that some of these didn't agree on, but out the window, we gotta get Christ. And we see that it is very much the same today. Beloved, you cannot trust in this world. This world has a prince. This world has a ruler. And he doesn't care about your life. He's not the ruler of life. He's not the prince of life. He seeks to rule. He seeks to reign. As Steve said, he seeks to be worshipped. He doesn't seek to please you until it, it comes to a point in which he's looking to get your vote. These Sadducees and Pharisees, again, are desiring a sign of their own choosing. 
They despise those signs which relieve the necessity of the sick and sorrowful. Much like today, they probably profited off a lot of the sick and sorrowful. I, I wonder at times some of the, the legends of the, the miraculous healing by the pool where the, the angel would supposedly stir the waters. I wonder sometimes if that wasn't perpe uh, perpetuated and spread throughout the land by those who sought to gain. It's kind of like now. If you go to Cedar Point, was big up north. I don't know how many down here know what Cedar Point is. But if you go to Cedar Point, where do the lemon ice carts usually line up? Right in the middle of those big, long lines you're waiting in to get on the roller coaster. They, it's profitable for them that you wait a long time because you're going to get thirsty. Well, it's profitable for these as well. They're not interested in people getting healed. What will Pfizer do if people get healed? What will these pharmaceutical companies do if they start getting healed? They're going to come after the one healing, and it won't be the devil. They called for something else which would be gratifying to the curiosity of the proud. They called for a great sign from heaven, such as one that would separate nations from God's chosen, that we have referenced already in this lesson. Those great plagues, that great scene of fire coming down and consuming the impurities. And they did not recognize themselves to be those sons of Aaron who burnt strange fire, who didn't worship in a true and spiritual way, but worshiped for signs, worshiped for profit, worshiped for self-preservation. What happened to was it Nadab and Abihu, I believe? What happened to them? Was there enough left to bury? They were all consumed. They were perfectly consumed by a holy righteous fire sent down by God. There was nothing left. What happened to Korah and all those that believed with him? The earth split open, swallowed them up, never to be seen again. Careful what signs from heaven you're waiting on. Careful exactly what it is you're waiting on to join the church, to serve the church, to prove your love for God. You may not like what you get. There's going to be some signs from heaven. Uh, when that tribulation starts, some of the things Steve's been teaching about, that would be considered signs from heaven. And as he said many, many times, that's not something we ought to want to see. That's not something we ought to want to experience. I love the contradiction today when you talked about the Jubilee trumpet. That's something we might want to we might want to see. What a beautiful contradiction Christ Jesus is to that wrath that we are spared from by his blood. The Pharisees and Sadducees sought a sign. You ought to seek salvation. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to. You need to believe and repent. I don't present invitations. I don't present miracle prayers, mourners benches and things of that nature. But it's utterly true. You have to believe to repent. And you must repent. All must repent. May the Lord see fit to be merciful unto us. And let's go ahead and close in prayer.